Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Is that when the kingdom of God comes near, we are demoted. Or perhaps better, deflated. One of the words that the New Testament uses for what we call pride is a word that um, literally means um, overinflated, uh, swollen, um, distended beyond its proper size. It's uh, related to the word for bellows. It's a, it's a very evocative idea. What it is to be proud is to be puffed up. Uh, it brings to mind that painful image of an organ that's distended because air's been pumped into it. So much air that it's overinflated and just ready to burst. It's swollen and extended. And, and that, according to the New Testament, according to the Gospel, is what happens to our ego by nature. <clears throat> kind of the natural drift of things is that's what happens to us when we're not thinking about it and not intentional about it. If it's not carefully managed, we become inflated. Uh, very commonly, that bloat comes by comparing ourselves to others. Uh, you will be familiar with this tactic, I suspect. And the older you get, the more familiar you are with it. We try to convince ourselves that we really are this good as we blow ourselves up by measuring ourselves against others. And so, standardly, competitiveness is at the heart of pride. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, the great English uh, author and scholar, put it like this. He says, quote, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. Uh, we say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but Lewis says... They're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. And so in order to maintain the size of the swollen ego, we become busy, always trying to have it over others, fitter and healthier, more successful, more money, bigger house, better school. And as much as I love the inner West, at the same time, don't you think that describes the frantic, virtue-signalling, weary, worn, and deep-down sad area around us, keeping so many balls in the air? You begin to wonder whether it really is for the sake of enjoyment, or rather is people get, getting sucked into this kind of tragic, foolish vacuum of maintaining a swollen ego. And of course, it's exhausting which is why so many people in the inner West are exhausted. The point is that when the kingdom of God comes near, there is a deflation. There is a puncturing of this artificial pumping up of oneself. And that when it is embraced, actually comes as a profound life-giving relief. Uh, the catalyst for the occasion that John 
records is a move by Jesus. We see it in verse 22 of John chapter 3. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he spent some time there with them and baptised. John also was baptising at Anan near Salem because water was abundant there and people kept coming and were being baptised. John, of course, had not yet been thrown into prison. Uh, Very sensibly, the Anglican Church has divided the entire world into dioceses and then within each diocese into parishes. The entire world is a patchwork quilt of these areas. Each one has very clearly specified boundaries. All of it is designed to ensure that everyone in the world belongs in someone's patch and also that no one encroaches on anyone else's territory. Okay, so Australia was once part, if you can believe it, of the Diocese of Calcutta. I mean, why not? Some years ago, I tried to lead a church plant in another parish. Disaster for relations between our church and theirs. Anyway, it turns out that Jesus is not interested in diocesan boundaries, and I think that's a pretty good example to follow, uh, because he heads out into the Judean countryside to make his base of operations right next to John. Right? It's like, it's like a church plant there on 82 Alt Street. It's a good area for baptising, apparently. There's lots of water and there's lots of people, right? That's good for baptising. And that's where it gets complex, verse 25. Now, a discussion about purification arose between John's disciples and a Jew. And they came to John and said, Rabbi, the one who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you testified, here he is, baptising, and all are going to him. Uh, what begins as a theological dispute about purification, or very interesting, highbrow theology, blah, 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 soon shows its true colours. It's a turf war. The disciples of John are getting their knickers in a knot because they're being outperformed. The disciples of Jesus are baptising with a greater productivity. They're smashing their KPIs out of the park and everyone's going to them. Now, it's not quite strictly true. Uh, Our author knows that Jesus himself did not baptise anyone, actually. We see that in the beginning of the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 2. But but what's even stranger is that the disciples of John know who Jesus is, right? It's explicitly mentioned. They've heard John's testimony about Jesus. He's the one across the Jordan. He's the one to whom the baptizer has testified. They know he ranks ahead of John because he was before John. They know that the Spirit has descended upon him and remained upon him. They know that he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. They know that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All these things they know. They've heard John speak plainly enough about it. You'd think they might be a little bit sort of cool. No, they're still peeved that people are going to him rather than coming to them for their outdated, outmoded, second-rate, redundant, superseded, not even a hint of the Holy Spirit, baptism. It's a pretty interesting moment, don't you think? It shows just how petty we can be, even contrary to our best intentions, when there's a great deal at stake. Like when our ego is puffed up 
with nothing but air based on comparison with others will do pretty dumb things. What's so great about this incident is that John is way, way above such pettiness. Verse 27, John answered, No one can receive anything except what has been given from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. For this reason, my joy has been fulfilled. He must increase. But I must decrease. Uh, Here in John is a healthy, non-inflated ego. A genuine humility. A humility that derives from two things. A true and accurate estimation of himself and a true and accurate estimation of Jesus, which we'll come to second. He knows, firstly, that all the good things that he has, every opportunity and possibility, every capacity, every gift, uh, sorry, every, every uh, success, all comes to him as a gift. And the gifts God gives are not meant to puff you up, but instead to fill you up. What's so crucial about John is that he hasn't connected the crowds. He had huge crowds. Enormous ministry success. But he hasn't connected the crowds or the number of baptisms or the influence that he's had to an estimation of himself. He hasn't made the connection between all of that stuff and his sense of self. John knows that everything he has, he's received. It's been given to him as a gift. None of it is his by right. None of it is his by merit. It's all pure grace from God. His abilities, his success, the disciples that he's made, the people he's baptised, none of it does he claim, uh, lay claim to by right. Now think about that for a moment. The really beautiful thing about that is that when he's successful, he's not puffed up. When he's not successful... He's not deflated. There's just no connection between his self and the stuff. The stuff, it's it's gifts given by God to enjoy in his own good pleasure for as long as you have them, to fill you up, but not to puff you up. This is such a crucial part of living well in the light of the kingdom. To cut the connection between whatever you have determined are the measures of your success. Your career success, your social ease, your home, your income, your relationships, and your sense of self. Whatever your measures are, If you connect them to your sense of self, they will crush you. They will blow you up and bloat you and then let you down and crush you. 
Your ego will change like an inflated and deflated balloon. And so as you cut that connection, instead you draw a line between those things and the Lord and God. They're gifts from him, just as simple as that. No one can receive anything except what has been given from heaven. Now, what's so interesting about this is that John is very, very special indeed. At one point later on in the gospel, we'll come to this next week, Jesus says he is the greatest person who has ever lived up to that time. Now, you know, I just think that there are some pretty special people here right tonight. I mean, you, you guys... I'd say awesome, except, well, anyway, awesome. But, but I don't know that anyone would put up their hand, you know, put in their vote for being the greatest person who had ever lived. Okay, that's just probably not going to be you. I can tell you, it certainly is not me. John was, according to Jesus. So if there was anyone who had, you know, a legitimate reason for being puffed up. It might be John. But what's so great about him is that he he knows how to frame even this position of significance. He uses a lovely image for himself which constitutes a beautiful self-forgetfulness. Did you notice it on the way through? He calls himself the best man to a bridegroom. Now, now of course, the, the, the whole idea of being a best man is not that you hog the limelight at the wedding. I mean, I, I, I know a few best men that have had a go at doing that. Really ugly. No, don't do that. I mean, yes, you're the best man and it's special and it's an honour and all that kind of nonsense. The deal is to make the bridegroom good. That's your job. The only real reason for having the best man is to look after the guy getting married, not to steal the limelight. And you may even know what this experience is like. Uh, you, you, if you've been a groom's person before or a bride's person before, uh, you watch your friend or if you've, uh, you know, your son or your daughter getting married, and, and for that moment, what, what, there's something really quite special happens. You, you become totally unaware of yourself. You just become completely wrapped up in the joy of the other. You're living in that moment with them. You forget about how hot it is in the room and how squashed up you are to the next person in the pew. You've forgotten what you're thinking about. You're self-forgetful. You're self-forgetful. And before you know it, tears are rolling down your face and you find joy in another person's joy. Do you know what that's like? Have you ever, have you ever managed to let go of yourself for even just a couple of minutes like that that you just have let, you've lost, and you've caught and, and got into someone else's joy. You find joy in that person's joy. That's what we're seeing in John. That's what it looks like not to be puffed up. That's what it looks like to have a healthy ego. If anyone could feel tempted to feel full of himself, it would be John. But he knows better than that. Whatever he is, whether significant or insignificant, whether high profile or low profile, whether widely known or unknown, except by the Father in heaven, 
the one who sees in secret, whether people are coming to him in droves to be baptised or he's actually sitting out there with the crickets. He's totally fine with it because it's all just a gift to him anyway. And he's pretty confident that the Father is wise in the gifts that he gives. And that's true for you and me. This is what happens when the kingdom of God comes near to your life. It frees you. It releases you to take joy in another's joy. A genuine, self-effacing humility like John. Again, C.S. Lewis makes this kind of brilliant observation about humility uh, at the end of his chapter on pride. And I think it uh, helps us to understand uh, verse 30 a little bit better. He must increase, remember John says, but I must decrease. Here's what Lewis says. He says, if we were to meet a truly humble person, if we were to meet a truly humble person, we wouldn't come away thinking that they were humble. There's a kind of irony about this. When you meet a really humble person, you don't come away going, well, aren't they humble? That's really impressive. Very, very, very good. I got to do this. They wouldn't keep telling us that they're a nobody because the person who keeps saying they're a nobody is actually very self-absorbed. Now, the thing, Lewis says, we'll remember from meeting a truly humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. And Lewis concludes with this really, uh, I think, brilliant insight. The essence of humility, he says, is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. The essence of humility is not, is not beating yourself down. It's not sort of whacking yourself over the head and telling yourself how, how rubbish you are. It's just thinking less frequently about yourself at all. It's the freedom of self-forgetfulness. Simply not connecting your achievements and abilities to yourself so that the calculating can stop. You know the, the calculating, the endless calculating that we do? How will this make me look? How did I come across in that conversation? I wonder what he thinks of me. I wonder what she thinks of me. There's just none of it. This is John's beautifully transformed sense of self. No inflation of ego here, just an ego that's healthy, enabling his own ego not to be his focus. He can let it go because it's safe in someone else's hands. This is the second reason that the kingdom of God coming near helps deflate distended egos. Uh, John knows not only that he must decrease, at least in the place that he holds in his disciples' estimation, but also he knows that Jesus must increase. And Jesus must increase for the same reason that John must decrease because of who Jesus is, verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks about earthly things. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what is seen and heard. No one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted his testimony has certified this, that God is true. Him God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has placed all things in his hands. Uh, from verse 31, there's a, a strong theme 
uh, in the chapter that's been there a little bit is really picked up and, and amplified. Uh, it's a contrast between the earthly and the heavenly, that, that which is down here and that which is up there or above. Um, and, and John says, an ordinary person, uh, no matter how spiritually insightful or gifted, uh, no matter how wise-sounding and interesting, um, just belongs to the earth. That's just how it is. Ashes to ashes. Dust to dust. That's all we are, earth to earth. And therefore can only speak with any authority about equally earthly things. That's just all there is to it. The point of reference for this is particularly Nicodemus, who comes in the first part of the chapter. Um, but the application's far broader. This is John the Baptist. He's just from the earth. It's any human prophet or religious teacher, Muhammad or Buddha or Jordan Peterson. Just from the earth. Interesting. Prophets can only ever speak from their earthly vantage point with all of that limitation and constraint. They can make their best hypotheses and theories about God and what the deity might be like. But in the end, all it is, all it can ever be, is guessing, groping in the dark. And the point, of course, is that the contrast with the one who is from above is massive. He is above all. That, um, that's where he's come from, above. And there is only one such, it's Jesus. He alone, to go back to John chapter 1, is God the only son who is close to the Father's heart. He therefore alone is the one who can make God known, who speaks not about what he's guessed at, not about what he's figured out, not what he's got some spiritual intuitions about, but what he's seen and what he's heard straight from the Father's heart and life. He alone speaks God's words because he alone has the spirit without measure. He alone is the one into whose hands have been placed all things. But go with the image here for a little bit. Uh, John moves into a kind of a law court territory of, of testimony, isn't it? Testimony. It's a word that describes someone um, who was there, right? Someone who has eyewitness account to give, someone who's an insider of the events. If you want to know the inside information about a family, you've got to ask a member of the family. If you want to know the inside information about life, if you want to know the inside story about God, you've got to go to the one who's there, the creator of that life, the son of that God. Here's a kind of a, a, a simple illustration. Depends what you make of uh, literary theory. You can have a, a great debate about what a poem means. Until the author walks into the room and says... This is what the poem means. And that, that's kind of the end of the discussion. I mean, you can question and, and so on, but, but you can't really say, you know what, I think I know better. Because the author just looks at you and says, what are you talking about? I wrote it. From Jesus, we're getting the word of the author of your life. Not just religious teachers grasping after truth. And in the presence of an insider, 
it's best just to be quiet, just to stop talking and listen. And what is the testimony that Jesus gives? What is his inside word? Well, in a sense, it's his entire ministry. It's all the words he speaks. And beyond the words he speaks, even, it's his actions which speak louder than words. And as the gospel progresses, this inside word of Jesus' testimony gains greater clarity. Uh, the, the baptizer says he must increase. And actually, this language of Jesus increasing, of being lifted up, of the hour of his glory, gets kind of more and more rapid pace throughout the Gospel of John. And we're wondering, waiting, when this moment of Jesus' glory, this greatness, this lifting up, this increasing will be. And on the night that Jesus is betrayed, he prays, Father, the hour has now come. It's an absolute, it's a fundamental moment in John's Gospel. Now's the time. The hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. And he's lifted up. And what lifting up means for Jesus is that he's lifted up on the cross. That's how he increases. He's lifted up on the cross. And of course, that's his testimony. That we human beings are more flawed and broken and guilty and shameful that we, than we ever dared face. I mean, just, just allow the thought to take just a little bit of root in your heart that your moral failures necessitated the death of the Son of God on the cross to atone for them. The, the moral depth of our culture is so often captured just in this awesome phrase, someone says, I'm not perfect. That's like saying, the sun is moderately warm. You're not perfect. You needed Jesus to die to atone for your sins. You're not even the same galaxy as perfect. That's you and me. That's the testimony of Jesus by his death on the cross. That we are so much more flawed and broken and guilty and shameful than we ever dared face. And yet the bigger half of it even if I can put it like that, is that at the very same time we're more loved and treasured and honoured and graced than we could ever dare hope. Because he would do it for you willingly. He gave up his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's the testimony. The verdict is in. And in verse 33, uh, we read that whoever's accepted his testimony has certified this. Some other translations uh, use the image of set his seal on it. Um, in, the, in the olden days, uh, no, no digital signatures. I, I sign things these days with a, you know, a, a docu-sign thing. They, they fake your signature and then off they send it off. Uh, or, or you might sign something on a dotted line. In the old days, it was wax and a signet ring, right? And you'd, you'd certify that this was you and yours and you put your, you know, authority on this. Boom, that, that's what this is saying. You've set your seal on something by being bound to it. 
And, and what John's saying here is that to accept the testimony of Jesus is to bind yourself to the truth of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Not your own testimony about yourself, not the testimony of other people about you. Those just puff you up. You've set your seal on the testimony of Jesus. It doesn't matter what people think. It doesn't matter what you think, actually. Their opinion, it counts for very little. So often it's like our egos on trial. We're in a courtroom and there's the prosecution and there's the defence and you look at your good stuff and you say, you know, defence, 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 and then there's the prosecution, there's all your junk that comes in. And the testimony comes thick and fast. And some days we feel we're winning and other days we feel we're losing. And what this says is that the trial is done. The trial is done, it's finished. We're not in the courtroom anymore because the ultimate verdict, the testimony from above, is in. God is your judge and he hits the gavel and he says, free, loved, cherished, justified, adopted, valued. And as that sinks in, you stop playing the game. You become beautifully, humbly confident. You forget about yourself because yourself is in good hands. You don't need to shore it up. All you are is a gift from God. Jesus is so awesome that you want to lift him up. The distended ego deflates. And in that there is such peace. Let's draw these threads together. Um, as you uh, recall this Advent and inhabit the reality that in Jesus Christ the kingdom of God has come near, uh, the invitation in the example of John the Baptist is to deepen in these things. First, to have a true estimate of ourselves, a genuine spiritual humility that recognises that all we are and all we have, we have as a gift from God and therefore our basic stance toward life is one of thankfulness. It's really important to see this that your basic stance toward life is one of thankfulness for what you've received, not grumbling for what we have not received or for what others have received. Again, I, I love living in the inner west, but it's also true to say that the inner west is Olympic-level complaining, don't you think? I mean, World Cup, Ronaldo, he's out, so it doesn't matter. Messi, Messi, that's um, Lionel, like awesome-level complaining. But, but if you grasp the reality that the kingdom of God has come near, you'll just complain less and whinge and grumble less and you'll find yourself growing in thankfulness all the time. It's incredibly significant uh, that you habitually express deep thankfulness for what God has given you in your life. And it works the other way around too, an unthankful life one lived without an evident gratitude, is one that's failed to recognise that all we have is a gift. It's a gift given in the infinite and loving wisdom of God. And unthankfulness is, is a failure to recognise the kingdom has come near in Jesus Christ. It just is one of the basic Christian distinctives that we are thankful people. 
And so just reflect a little bit. How habitual for you is it? Your thankfulness as the basic disposition of your heart. Which is the, the second lesson. The humility of John is a product of his estimation of Jesus. What you might even call his magnificent obsession with Jesus. Uh, Bishop, uh, English Bishop J.C. Ryle puts it this way. We can never make too much of Christ. Our thoughts about the church, the ministry and the sacraments may easily become too high and extravagant. But we can never have too high thoughts about Christ. We can never love him too much. We can never trust him too implicitly. We can never lay too much weight upon him and speak too highly in his praise. He is worthy of all the honour that you can ever give him. He will be everything in glory. Let us see to it that he is everything in our hearts on earth. It's a good word, isn't it? And encourages us to do some reflection. How magnificent is your obsession with Jesus? What is the story that your life and decisions and character and bank statement tell? Is that aligned with his program for the kingdom of God? He's the one from above. He's above all, all. He's the one into whose hands the Father has placed all things. The one who has the spirit without measure. Let's make sure that our love and worship and devotion to him correspond to all that he is. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you as the one who is lifted up, exalted in glory, and that lifting up took primarily the form of the cross upon which you were hoisted that great moment of your triumph and achievement where you defeated sin and overcame evil with good and won our atonement and saved us. Fill us, we pray. Fill us so that we can be humble, confident, serving, sacrificial, and self-forgetful people lost in wonder and praise of your glory. Amen.